0: Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 to 8. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the, the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hands to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord.
1: In that reading that Zach brought us, God says to Moses what, what God is going to do. The Lord appeared to Moses in the desert. You might remember the story, and Moses saw a blazing bush that wasn't being burnt up, and he thought, I'll go and see what this, what, what this is about. And as he approached the bush, God spoke to him out of the blazing bush and said, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Go! Gather the elders of Israel together and tell them, Yahweh has said, that's God's name, I shall bring you out of the misery of Egypt to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They will listen to your words. You and the elders of Israel are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, please, allow us to make a three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to Yahweh our God. So Moses and his brother Aaron, who was older than him, went to Pharaoh and said to him, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, let my people go so that they can hold a feast in my honour in the desert. And Pharaoh said, Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh? For me to obey what he says, I know nothing of Yahweh and will not let Israel go. He was not impressed with Moses and Aaron or with God, and God was not impressed with Pharaoh. And he said to Moses, Now you will see what I am going to do to Pharaoh. And there were 10 plagues that came on the land of Egypt. The first one, what was the first plague? Anybody tell from the picture what the first plague was? Any ideas? Fish died. Why did the fish die? Because the water went red. The water went red. What did the water turn into, do you think? Blood. 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 Moses stretched his staff out of the river Nile, and the water in the river turned to blood. The water in the streams turned to blood. The water in the ponds turned to blood. The water in buckets and bowls, taps if they'd had them turned to blood, everything turned to blood and the fish died and the river stank and it was really, really horrible but Pharaoh still wasn't going to let the people go the second plague what are these? yeah frogs perhaps they came out of the water because it was blood, I don't know But yeah, the land was infested with frogs. Everywhere. They're there in Pharaoh's palace, but they're in Pharaoh's bed as well. Everywhere you went, the land was hopping, crawling with frogs in the bathroom, in the ovens. You couldn't get away from them. Pharaoh still wouldn't let the people go. When the frogs died, that made a pretty disgusting mess as well. After frogs came, what are these? Sorry, not people. What's buzzing around? Flies, bigger than flies. Gnats. Might have been mosquitoes, rather like flying ants, kind of thing. Really, really, they're horrible, aren't they? Disgusting creatures. And the land was swarming with them everywhere. There were flying gnats, getting in your eyes, in your mouth. The yard, the ground was black with them. It was foul. Pharaoh still wouldn't let the people go. After that came the flies. The flies were everywhere as well. It was really, really gross. The dust of the ground turned into flies, and there were countless flies in the land of Egypt. After that, what happened? The horses died. The horses died. The cattle died. All the livestock died. Not the livestock belonging to God's people, the Israelites, but all the livestock belonging to the Egyptians died in the land and still Pharaoh is saying, nope, nope, not going to let it happen, not going to let you go. After that, boils, boils and sores. Took some ashes from an oven, threw them up in the air, and they became festering boils and sores on everybody. And it was really, really nasty and uncomfortable and unpleasant. But still, no change. After that, any idea what this picture might represent? Hail. hail. Good man, yes. Do you know Horsham has the biggest recorded hailstone? In the UK, you can read about it in Middle Street, wherever it is. Well, you know, these were biblical hailstones that they fell then. If you went out in the open air while the hail was falling, it was enough to kill you. So everybody had to stay inside and stay safe. After that, The the trees died. Why did the trees die? It was locusts. Locusts coming through the land and everything that was green was devoured by the locusts and everything turned black and was left lifeless. Still, Pharaoh was saying, no, nope, not going to let you go. After that, what's this one? You can't see. You can't see. Why can't you see? Yes! Well done. Because it was dark. Well done. They describe it as a darkness that was so intense that it could be felt. You couldn't see anything at all. It was pitch black everywhere. And the last plague. What was the last one? Yeah. The firstborn. God says, That night I will go through Egypt and strike down all the firstborn in Egypt, man and beast alike. And on the night of Passover... Every household in Egypt lost a firstborn child. And that was enough for Pharaoh to say, Enough! Up! Leave my subjects, you and the Israelites, go and worship Yahweh as you've asked, and take your flocks and herds as you've asked Just get out of here, I don't want to see anything more of you ever again. So the Israelites left Egypt. They numbered 600,000 by this stage. Still not quite the stars in the sky, but definitely getting there. And they left Egypt on their way to safety to worship God in the desert. And Pharaoh, when he saw them gone, changed his mind. People were saying, what have we done allowing Israel to leave our service? And so they set out with an army to pursue them, 600 chariots to get them back or to kill them, one or the other, didn't mind which. And they came upon Israel at a place that they were trapped between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. There was no escape. And the people panicked, cried out, help, save us. And Moses said... Don't be afraid. Stand firm. You will see what Yahweh will do to rescue you today. Yahweh will do the fighting for you. All you need to do is remain calm. Moses stretched out his staff over the Red Sea and the waters parted to make a corridor so that the people of Israel could pass through safely on dry land. The Egyptians went after them and began to realise fairly soon that something was wrong. They were getting bogged down in the sea and they they weren't making progress. They they couldn't go forward and they couldn't go back and Moses stretched his hand over the sea and the waters returned to their place and the Egyptian army, 600 chariots, was washed away. And when the people stood on the shore of the Red Sea and saw the bodies of the Egyptian soldiers washed up on the beach, they knew that God had rescued them as he promised. And they sang a song.
2: And so we come to our second reading, which is from Exodus chapter 24, verses 1 to 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the words, Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. Moses got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant. And read it to the people, and they responded, We will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. They
1: saw God, and they ate and drank. That's a mind-blowing sentence. Seeing God itself is is quite remarkable. Throughout scripture it's said again and again, no one can see God. The Lord is invisible. He dwells in unapproachable light. No one can see my face and live, says the Lord. When Isaiah has a vision of the Lord in the temple, he is completely and utterly overwhelmed by the experience. Woe is me, he cries. I'm unclean. Yet my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. He can't cope with the experience. John in his gospel quite categorically states that no one has ever seen God. Clearly people have had visions of God and the amount that they've been able to see or not to see has varied considerably. Yet the blunt assertion is in Exodus 24, these men, Moses, Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders went up the mountain and they saw God the God of Israel. And God did not lift his hand against them. They lived to tell the tale. They had privileged access to be able to set their eyes on the living God. What they actually saw is not described. We only read that under his feet was a kind of pavement made of something like sapphire that was as clear as the sky itself. Maybe that's the only bit that they could bear to look at all that they could set their eyes on because they were bowed down before the presence of God, unable to lift their eyes any higher than his feet. But I'm not so sure. They saw God, it says, and they ate and drank. There's such a huge contrast between the immensity of the claim that these men set their eyes on the, the indescribable God and the banality of the claim that they sat down and had a meal while they were there. That juxtaposition of worship and eating a meal. Not so much a sense of being awestruck by his holiness or his majesty or being lost in wonder, love and praise, but more a sense of being at home in God's presence. Being made welcome by God. Eating and drinking together being an expression of, of their fellowship with God. So they could share a meal and gaze on the living God at the same time. Such an experience defies imagination and comprehension, really. And if you backtrack from this point to the start of the Bible, nothing quite like this has ever happened since God used to drop by and have a chat with with Adam and Eve, of an evening. Since they'd been banished from the garden of his presence, no such familiarity had ever taken place. Abraham came close to it when three angels paid him a visit and had a meal with him, and then the sense the Lord was present on that occasion. At other times, Abraham had visions of the Lord, and Jacob did as well. But nothing quite like being able to look on the God of Israel while sitting down to a meal with your fellow elders. And it's a startling verse, and it's a really important verse. Because it makes the point actually that this is the kind of relationship that God wants with us as his people. God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, not to take them direct to the land of Canaan, but actually to bring them to Mount Sinai so that representatives of the people could eat and drink and sit in his presence. Because that is what God wants for us. That's the kind of relationship that God desires to have with us. That we can sit down, share a meal, relax and enjoy each other's company in the presence of the living God. You might accuse me of reading a bit too much into this verse. After all, it only says they ate and drank. We don't know that they felt comfortable there. They might have just forced down a few mouthfuls of food and t- taken a couple of sips of drink just to be polite before they could get away from that terrible presence of God back down the mountain again to be with their friends, safe and sound. But it's not the impression that you get. This isn't a hasty furtive meal ate in dread and fear it implies a good meal time spent enjoying food and drink with God effectively acting as host the meal being the clearest sign possible that it was okay to be there that God made them welcome that this was where they belonged How is such a thing even possible? Because at the start of the chapter, God says, you know, you Moses, you can come up, but everybody else can't come anywhere near. And yet later on, there they all are, eating and drinking in God's presence. What happens in between is that Moses makes a covenant between the Lord and his people. Before the covenant, no one apart from Moses is allowed anywhere near the presence of God. Once the covenant has been made, the four leaders, the 70 elders, as representatives of the nation as a whole, they are able to sit and eat this meal in the presence of the God of Israel. How's the covenant made? Sacrifices of burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Half the blood of the sacrifices is sprinkled on the altar. That represents God's commitment to the covenant on his part. The book of the covenant is then read, presumably containing the laws set out in Exodus chapters 21 to 23, laws which cover a whole range of issues, setting out how God expected his people to live and behave. Those laws weren't given on a conditional basis, that if you keep them, then God will accept you as his people. God had already redeemed them. God had already claimed them as his own. God had already set them free from Egypt. It was in response to God's act of salvation that the Lord said to them, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, that of all the nations of the world you will be my treasured possession. That was the Lord's will and purpose and desire for them. The law was given so that they would know what it meant to live as God's holy people in practice. So the words of the covenant are read and in response the people affirm we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And when the people say those words Moses takes the other half of the sacrificial blood and sprinkles it on the people and says this this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So as the blood Sprinkled on the altar represents God's commitment to the covenant with the people, so the blood sprinkled on the people represents their answering response of commitment to the God who's made a covenant with them. That He will be their God and they will be His people. It's about, and we thought about this last week, it's about God binding the people to Himself in a covenant relationship. And it's because that covenant has been made, because the relationship has been established. Because God has made that covenant with his people that the elders are welcome to sit and eat and drink in the presence of the living God. There's a sense in which that fellowship with God was possible because the blood of the covenant had made atonement for the nation. We might assume that the blood of the sacrifices atoned for their sin. But the young men did not sacrifice sin offerings or guilt offerings both of which were designed expressly for the purpose of bringing forgiveness through atonement. Rather, the offerings made were burnt offerings and fellowship or peace offerings, offerings that represented wholehearted dedication to God and fellowship and peace with God. Because atonement is more about more than just forgiving sins. Atonement also is about lives being redeemed, people being made holy, People being consecrated and set apart to God. Atonement literally means at one meant. People separated from God, being brought together again with God. The relationship restored through the blood of the covenant. And that seems to have been the role played by the blood of the whole burnt offerings and guilt offerings. The sacrifice is symbolising the dedication of the nation whom God had redeemed in holiness to him. And that relationship being established and once that covenant relationship was established then the representatives of the nation were welcome to come and eat and drink in the presence of the God of Israel and to look upon him in safety and as far as God was concerned it may be that this actually was the most important thing far more important than the the invasion and possession of the land Because yes, God did bring his people out of Egypt to take them to the land of Canaan. But their first significant destination was Mount Sinai. Where God gave them the law. Where God made this covenant with them. And the elders of Israel were able to eat and drink in his presence. This was no sightseeing detour. A pleasant diversion from the primary objective of entering the land. No, this was being made welcome in the presence of God. This establishing of the covenant relationship between the Lord and his people, this was what really mattered. The land was a place where the people of Israel would be able to live in security and safety and enjoy fellowship with God. It was always a means to an end, not an end in itself. And they wouldn't get there for another 40 years anyway. This this was what it was all about as far as God was concerned. The problem was for the people, they pretty consistently seemed to value the land more than they valued the Lord. But God did not want a kind of service provider relationship with them to come in, rescue them from the land of Egypt, and then return to heaven with mission accomplished. What God wanted was to be present with his people, to be in their company. To be with them and for them to be with him. So that out of all the nations of the world, they would enjoy, enjoy the kind of closeness to God that was on God's agenda when he made us in the first place. And at Sinai, once the covenant is made, the veil between heaven and earth is removed and people were able to set eyes on God as they ate and drank in his presence the mundane and the celestial, brought together by a meal in the presence of the living God. And this episode of the elders seeing God and eating and drinking gives us a glimpse of heaven. Because one day in glory, it will be our privilege to sit down and eat and drink together in the presence of God. And that's what God wants. That's the ultimate purpose he had in creating us in the first place. That is the ultimate goal and destination of our lives. And while we will be amazed and in wonder and in awe at the glory and the presence of God, there will be space to sit down and enjoy a meal together. Because that expresses fellowship with each other as well as fellowship with him. Heaven will not be all about worship 24-7. It will be that chance, actually, to eat together in God's presence, to know that this is where we belong. This is where we are welcome. This is how God wants it to be. And here and now, if we say grace at mealtimes, we remind ourselves that as we eat and drink, God is with us at the table, even though his presence is unseen. And he's there because he delights in our company. He loves being with us as his covenant people because he loves us as his covenant people. When we come here and we worship, we raise our consciousness of who God is and we inch further forward in learning to love being in his presence because we love the God who has redeemed us and bound us to himself in a covenant relationship, not with the blood of young bulls, but through the blood of his one and only son who loved us and gave himself for us and who promised where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be in their midst as much as when we sit round a table and share a meal as when we gather here in church on a sunday morning on that mountain the veil between heaven and earth is stripped away people eating and drinking were able to see the presence of god the reality of heaven was apparent to them on an everyday basis, though unseen, as we eat and drink together, the presence of God is there with us too. Because we're God's covenant people. Because he's redeemed us by his son. Because he's promised he wants to be with us. And as we look forward to the day when we will be in his presence in glory, we have the promise of his presence with us now in the ordinary, everyday man things of eating and drinking so as we look forward to being in the presence of God let's recognize and remember his presence with us here and now in everyday existence because the God we worship is the covenant God who delights to be with his people simply because he loves us and he calls us into a relationship with him And he binds himself to us with an eternal covenant that means that we are welcome at all times in his presence. Let's pray.